0: question is, does he always get the worship that he deserves? Some of you may have read uh, a great Christian author named A.W. Tozer, and he wrote a, a book about worship. And in this book, after looking at the church, especially in America, this is what he said, worship is the missing jewel in the modern church. And he said we should search for it until we find it. Well, we certainly don't want worship to be the missing jewel at the Orchard Church. Amen? We want to make sure that worship is our highest priority, because that is the highest command that God has called us to. Worship is our subject today, just as it was last week, and we're going to continue in our study today of the book of Revelation. So go ahead and take out your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, as we continue our series, uh, Return of the King, A Journey Through Revelation, as we go verse by verse through this book. I want to catch you up just a little bit of where we've been. In chapter 1, we saw John was on the Isle of Patmos. Jesus appeared to him and he said, I want you to write down the things you've seen in that encounter that he had with Christ. He then told him to also write down the things which are, and we studied in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, the seven churches and the specific, very practical letters that Jesus had to those churches in Asia Minor, but were also practical to us today, individually and corporately as a church. And then last week we turned a corner as we went to chapter 4 of Revelation, and we saw that John was taken up into heaven, into an open door. We could say he was raptured. And it's a picture of the rapture of the church. He was raptured and taken up into heaven. And we turned that corner, and now Jesus is telling John to write down the things that will take place after this. The future events, the prophetic things yet to come. The rapture of the church, the judgment seat of Christ, the seven years of tribulation on the earth, uh, the antichrist, the beast, the false prophet. That's the things we're starting to get into uh, in the book of Revelation, and we'll hit them full force as we get into chapter six. But right now in chapter four and five, John has been taken up to heaven and the scene is worship in heaven. And Pastor Barry last week did a great job of taking us into the throne room of God there in chapter four. And John began to try to humanly describe the best he could uh, with words to help us understand and get a picture and an idea of what heaven is going to look like in the throne room of God. And he described it as as God on a throne looking like a jasper stone and a sardis stone and all the different colors that would have been refracting from those stones. And he described that there was a rainbow around the throne. Remember the color? It was the color of emeralds. And it was that emerald green around the throne, and he described four creatures with six wings and 24 elders around the throne. And they were bowing down to the God of the universe and casting their crowns at his feet. And what we saw was this incredible worship service taking place in heaven. It's hard for our finite minds really to fathom what it was like. We've got some pictures, I think we already put them on the screen, that are some... Artist renditions of Revelation 4 and 5, and maybe what this might have looked like. But I don't know that they really even do it justice. I don't know that we can fully understand, but we appreciate the attempts that they've made to understand this worship scene in heaven that John is describing to us. I don't know how many guys like to go to concerts. How many of y'all like going to concerts? I think a lot of people do. And uh, I found out this week that Americans spend over $1 billion a year going to concerts, whether that be secular concerts or Christian concerts. And I enjoy going to concerts. I wouldn't say I'm like a big-time concert goer, but there's certain, you know, especially Christian artists that come around and I want to go to their concerts. I remember now I'm going to really date myself. Some of y'all are going to laugh and some of y'all are going to have no clue what I'm talking about. I remember the first... Christian concert that I ever went to. I think I was in middle school. Are you ready for this? They were called the Imperials. Yeah, oh, see, see? A couple of people about my age. Know what yeah, they were this singing quartet group, and you know, they sang a song called, I Listen to the Trumpet of Jesus, and you know, I mean, that was really rocking back then, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, and, and then I remember, I think my next concert was a guy named Carmen. Any of you guys ever heard of him? Carmen, he's, is he still alive? I don't know if he's still around, or on his walker or whatever. But, uh, Carmen, I went to a Carmen concert. And this is a true story. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Carmen, there was, uh, behind my house in the town that I grew up in, uh, behind my house was this big, huge apartment complex. And Carmen got his start in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He lived in one of the apartments behind my house. And I was a paper boy. And I threw papers. And I threw a paper to Carmen. And I collected money from him. So, yeah, that's a true story. Um, I remember one of the coolest Christian concerts I ever went to was Stephen Curtis Chapman. I, I mean, he was really big in the middle 80s, and I still love Stephen Curtis Chapman. But he was, he was one of the coolest concerts I ever went to. It was the first time I went to a concert. And, I mean, they had, like, lights going and lasers going and fog machines. And, I mean, it was, it was quite the show, and it was, it was pretty entertaining. But you know what? What we're studying here in Revelation 4 and 5, there has never been a worship service or concert like the one John is describing right here. And one day, we're going to experience worship beyond what our finite minds can ever comprehend. You know, 44 times, John, in the book of Revelation, talks about what he saw firsthand. 27 times, he talks about, in the book of Revelation, what he heard. You know, John didn't need to sing the famous song, I Can Only Imagine, about heaven, because he was there. He saw it. He heard it. I mean, in the flesh, He saw these things, and He's telling us about heaven. And we all have an interest in heaven. We want to know, what is it going to be like? You know, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? I heard a story this week about two good friends, Sam and Charlie. They grew up together. They played on a baseball team together in Little League. They went on. They played in high school. They played in college together. didn't quite make it to the pros, but they loved going to baseball games. They loved watching baseball games on TV, and, and, and they were great friends their whole life. And they, they Sam and Charlie talked to each other, and they often wondered, is there going to be baseball in heaven? They really wanted to know that, so they made this pact with each other. And they said, okay, whoever dies first, when you get to heaven, if there's baseball in heaven, and there's any way you can get word back to the other person, let us know if there's baseball in heaven. Well, sure enough, Sam passed away, and he went to heaven. And after his funeral was over, a couple of nights later, Charlie was laying in bed, and all of a sudden, he heard this, you know, Charlie, Charlie, and he's like, What? He's like, Is that you, Sam? He's like, Yeah, it's me. He said, I got a message to you from heaven. He's like, What? Is there baseball? And he said, Heaven? He's like, Yeah, I've got great news. He said, I've got some good news, though, and I've got some bad news. The good news is, There's baseball in heaven. And Charlie's like, That's great. What's the bad news? He says, The bad news is, You're starting pitcher next Friday. <laughs> well, I don't know if there's going to be baseball in heaven or not. But I do know there's going to be amazing worship in heaven beyond what we can imagine. And our focus here in this study in Revelation today um, shifts from focusing and worshiping the creator on the throne, God the Father, to God the Son, Jesus Christ the Redeemer, who is in the midst of the throne. And we see him finally getting the worship that he certainly deserves. Let's pray, and let's jump into chapter 5 of Revelation today. Heavenly Father, I just pray today that... Whatever we have brought in here in our lives to distract us, our work, our family, our health situations, our financial situations, I pray today that we might be able to set all of that aside and completely focus our attention upon heaven, completely focus our attention most of all on you and the worship of you and the worship that you're one day going to get that you deserve. The worship that you desire from us. And that it wouldn't be something that we just wait to do when we get into heaven. But we would do it today with our lives, with our songs. That we would live a life of of obedient worship to you. Because you certainly are worthy of our worship. I pray today that every person here would gain a greater appreciation of what true worship is about. And why you and you alone are so worthy of it. And if anyone is here today that has never given their heart and life to you, Lord, I pray today would be the day they realize that there's nothing more worthy to give your life to than you. And that they would make that decision. I pray all this in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Let's read the first four verses together here. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, this is God the Father, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look at it. So I wept much. Who's weeping? John is. John says, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or even to look at it. I brought uh, today what might be something like the scroll in heaven. Um, it had seven seals on it, which we know is a very significant number as we continue to study the book of Revelation. Seven is the number of perfection. Seven is the number of completion. And John gets to heaven, he sees the Father on the throne being worshipped, but then he sees this scroll in his right hand. And, and the question is, who can take this scroll? Now, in the Roman times, Paul was, you know, describing this scroll like what he would be used to in his culture. The Romans would have a scroll like this and it had seals on it, usually because it was a very, very important document. It was usually a will or a title deed. You know, there's a, scholars have a lot of different views about what was in this scroll that John saw. We don't know for sure, but I believe that if you continue to read, and we'll see in our study in Revelation 6 and 7 as these seals are opened, one after another in this scroll, that it was probably the, the title deed to the earth, and, and God's redemption plan, and, and everything the Father had promised to His Son, and what He was going to inherit it because of what He had done was written on this scroll. Notice that it says in in the scriptures here that there was writing on both sides of the scroll. It was completely full. It was letting us know it was complete. And it was final. There was nothing more to be added to it. And this title, deed, or will could only be opened by an appointed heir. Not just anybody could open this very special scroll that John is describing that he saw in seven now this er, in the in the scriptures now the scripture says here in verse two it says that there was a strong angel that asked the question who is worthy to open the scroll would you like to know who this strong angel is we don 't know <laughs> we don't know for sure it just says it was a strong angel we can uh, take some pretty good educated guesses if we compare Scripture with Scripture, because the Bible tells us that it was a strong angel. Many believe it was an archangel. One of the archangel's names is Gabriel, and his name, Gabriel, means strength of God or strong angel. So it's possible, but that's not what's important. What's important is the scroll and who's going to open it. And the scripture tells us in verse 3 here of Revelation that no one was found worthy to open this very important document, this seven-sealed scroll. The angels weren't worthy to open it. The 24 elders, as important as they were around the throne we studied last week, they couldn't open it. The six creatures around the throne, with this, uh, the, the four creatures with the six wings, they couldn't open it. I mean, the Old Testament saints were certainly there. I mean, Moses was there. Noah was there. Abraham is there. Isaac is there. I mean, all of these people we read about, they're there, and none of them are worthy to open it. None of the New Testament saints and believers that are there are able to open it. None of the disciples. None of the apostles. Not Paul. I mean, so the question is, who is going to open this incredible document? Now, the question wasn't who is willing to open it. The question is, who is worthy to open it? And John, when he realized that nobody seemed worthy for a moment there in heaven, what does he do? Verse 4 says he began to weep, or weep. And he says he wept much. This literally means, it wasn't like he was just had some tears kind of trickling down that he was fighting back. He was sobbing, perfu- what this, this means. Peter wept bitterly, we know, after he denied the Lord. It's the same word in the scriptures that to describe this weeping. You know, this is the only place we find in scripture that tears are recorded in heaven. Now, you get a little bit later in Revelation as we're going to see that when there's the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, there's no more tears, but for a moment right now there are tears. You know, I've heard that you could tell a lot about a person by three things. What makes them laugh, what makes them angry, and what makes them cry. This was a very, very important document to John and to all of us, and was anybody worthy to open it. Now, why was John so upset? Why is he weeping? Because the scroll contained God's final redemptive plan to save mankind. That was what was so important about this scroll. This had the redemption plan on it. And in order for that plan to be completely fulfilled, it had to be open. Now, the word redeem is a word you see a lot in Scripture, redeem, redemption. You know, it's not a word we use a lot. Sometimes we'll say we're going to redeem a coupon or something like that. We get, you know, a gift card, we're going to redeem it. Here's what redeem means. You need to understand this today. Redeem means to buy back or pay a ransom. It means to buy back or pay a ransom for something. One writer said it this way. I thought it's a great description of redemption. He said, redemption is a word implying helplessness. The picture of redemption is of one being held captive by forces that cannot be overcome. Only a third party can intervene to rescue. Redemption never comes by our own efforts. Redemption cannot happen without there first being a redeemer. So the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and bring about the final redemptive plan into action? Well, you know what? The Apostle Paul has already answered this question for us. It's amps- answered throughout the pages of Scripture. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7? In him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Are you thankful for that this morning? We have redemption. We've been bought back. We've been our ransom has been paid by Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Jesus is the only one worthy to open the scroll and reveal God's final redemptive plan for mankind. He is our worthy redeemer. That is great news this morning for all of us. Amen. And now as we look at the rest of chapter 5 of Revelation, John is going to give us in describing four reasons why Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, is worthy of our worship today. And I hope you'll gain a greater appreciation than you've ever had before of how worthy Jesus is to receive all of our worship. Let me give you these four reasons why He is worthy. First of all, number one, He is worthy of our worship because of who He is. He's worthy of worship because of who He is. Look at uh, verse 5 through 7. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, or look at, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. There is one worthy. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a Lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came, and he took the scroll out of my right hand of him who sat on the throne. Notice that it's an angel who asks who is worthy, but it's an elder who says to John, hey, here's the one that's worthy. Why was it an elder instead of an angel? Because angels don't need to be redeemed, but elders do. Believers do, and the elder says, here's our redeemer, and he brings forth Jesus. There he is, and he steps forward, and he takes the scroll out of the right hand of his father, And he is worthy to open it. Now, Jesus, our Redeemer here, we we understand a greater appreciation of who he is and how he is described by this elder. Look at the three titles that he gives us. He says, Behold, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. Maybe you've heard that title for Jesus before. The Lion of the Tribe of Judah. Take time, maybe later, to go back and do some further study. Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10. You'll find that Jacob, before his death, prophesied that his son, Judah, that the Messiah would come through his uh, line, would come through his lineage, would come through Judah. And we know that we see throughout scriptures that all the kings of Israel came through the line of Judah just as the Messiah would come through the line of Judah. And now Jesus, we know, came through the line of Judah. And he's described here as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now when we think of a lion, what do we think of? We think of power. We think of strength. We think of authority, majesty, and king. After all, who's the king of the jungle? The lion is. I'm reminded of a story about a lion. One day, and he was going through the the jungle, and he was, you know, feeling really good about his kingship and that he was, you know, the head honcho. And he was going around, and he wanted to remind the other animals that he was the king of the jungle and that they hadn't forgotten. And so he, you know, stuck out his chest and he waltzed up to a zebra he saw standing there, and he roared, roar! He said, "Who's the king of the jungle, zebra?" And the zebra said, "Oh, you are, Mr. Lion. You are." And he bowed down to him and said, "That's right." And he strutted off a little bit further. He was looking for somebody else to talk to. And he comes across this monkey running around. He said, Hey! He slaps him upside the head. And he says, Who's the king of the jungle? And the, oh, the monkey said, Oh, you are, Mr. Lion, you are. And, and he goes up to the giraffe, Roar, who's the king of the jungle? And the giraffe bows down, Oh, you are, Mr. Lion, you are. And then he sees this big, huge elephant. And he goes up to the elephant. And he roars real loud and he says, Who's the king of the jungle? The elephant just kind of looks around and goes back to eating. And he's like, Whoa! And he's, roars even louder. He said, I said, who's the king of the jungle? No answer. So then he gave out his biggest roar that he had ever roared in his life and tried to get this elephant's attention. He said, I said, who's the king of the jungle? Elephant looked down at him. He grabbed him by his trunk. He swung him around and threw him against a tree. Boom! The lion said, well you didn't have to get mad just because you didn't know the answer. (laughs) Well we know the answer to who the king of kings and lord of lords is. It's Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And as we're going to see next week, Jesus is portrayed as this lion as he brings judgment upon the earth. But I ask you today, is he the king of your life? He wants to be the king of your life and my life. He's also called not only the king, of uh, the, king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's called the root of David. The root of David. I'm not going to take a long time here, but you need to understand what this means. Um, In his humanity, when Jesus was here on this earth, in human flesh, he was often referred to as the son of who? Son of David. Because the Bible tells us the Messiah had to come through the lineage of Judah and David. And Jesus did. So in his humanity, he is often referred to as the son of David. But in his deity as God, here he's referred to as the root of David. The other side of the coin, if you will. You see, once again, this proves that Jesus is both Messiah and God. He's the root of David. He was before David, but he also came through the line of David in his humanity. And this proves, once again, that he's God and Messiah, and he's worthy to open the scroll. But then the one that we want to spend a little bit of time talking about this morning is this third description. And that he's described not only as the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, but he's described as a lamb. Now this elder says, behold, look at the line of the tribe of Judah, Now John hears this and he turns expecting to see a lion. But what does he see? He sees a lamb. It says he looked in verse 6 and he said, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. This word lamb here literally in the Greek language means a little pet lamb. He's expecting a lion and he sees a little pet lamb. Now that probably was weird to John. I thought you said a lion and I got this little pet lamb. That doesn't really seem to be fitting. You know, and as I was thinking about how John was surprised by that, I was thinking about some of our college football teams. I always can turn everything to football. I was thinking about some of our colleges, you know, and and the mascots of colleges. You know, if you're going to choose a mascot for your college. You want something that shows some power and strength, you know, and maybe is a little bit intimidating. You know, CU has the buffaloes, and, you know, they're a big animal, and you get a bunch of them together, there could be a stampede, and that could be intimidating. And CSU, they got the ram, and that's a majestic creature, and, you know, it's got those big horns, and, you know, it can run people over, and that seems pretty fitting. But what's up with teams like the Oregon Ducks? You know, if you're from Oregon, I'm sorry. I just, I mean, a duck to me is not intimidating. You know, when I think of a fierce football team, I don't think of a duck. You know, I think of a you know, that's what I think about, whatever that means. Or how about this one? Jamie, I brought this one in just for you today. The Minnesota Golden Gophers. The Golden Gophers? Who's afraid of a gopher? You know what I mean? What? I, when I think of a Golden Gopher, I don't think of a fierce football team. I think of a, like a bowling trophy. You know, put a gover on it. Or here's one. How about the Maryland terrapins? Y'all go, What's a terrapin? It's a little turtle. It's a little baby turtle. Now, who is afraid of a little turtle? I mean, I mean your football team. Yeah, we run like the terrapins. You know. Let me give you one more. I don't know if Tim is here yet. He Oaks. He'll be in the second service. We got one for him. The Ohio State Buckeyes. You know what a buckeye is? It's a little nut that falls off a tree. And it just lays there on the ground. I mean, at least a turtle moves. I I just think about things like that. But Jesus here, John's expecting a lion, but he sees a lamb. A harmless little pet lamb. What's the point of that? Well, it's very important that we understand the point the scriptures are making. You see, in his deity as God and Messiah, Jesus is the lion. But in his humanity, when he came to this earth, he presented himself as a sacrificial lamb. The lamb that takes away our sins. And there are four specific descriptions here of Jesus as the lamb that I don't want us to miss. Here in verse 6, John says, and I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four creatures... Stood a lamb as though it had been slain. The first description John gives of this lamb, it was a slain lamb. A lamb as though it had been slain. I don't mean to be gross, but I want you to understand exactly what this word slain means. It doesn't mean that, you know, there was just a little cut. It means this word in the Greek means butchered, slaughtered, or to slit open the throat. That's what it means. And, and this seems like a grotesque picture to us. And if an artist were to try to, to paint a rendition of this, it would probably be very grotesque for us to look at. But I want you to understand, when we see this in heaven, it is not going to be gross, it's going to be beautiful. Because this is the one that took away our sins and paid the price. I, I, I know there's different beliefs on this and I don't want to split hairs, but I believe in heaven. We're not just going to see the scars on Jesus' hands and feet and on His side. I believe we're going to see the literal wounds. Why? Because we are it's going to be a reminder to us for all eternity that Jesus Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice to save us. And that we'll never forget that. You remember when Thomas didn't believe that Jesus was resurrected? He said, I'm not going to believe unless I can what? Put my finger in the nail print hands and in his side. And I believe that is exactly what... John is describing here, seeing Jesus as the lamb of sacrifice in heaven. Peter said it this way, knowing that you and I were not redeemed or bought back with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. As a believer, that should be precious to us. This sacrificial lamb is a theme you see throughout scriptures from Old Testament to New Testament. That in order for sins to be paid for, there has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a lamb sacrifice. 28 times in Revelation, Jesus is described as that sacrificial lamb. He's given that title. But this scene was set that there was going to be a sacrificial lamb, if you remember back in the Old Testament, with Abraham. Remember when God told Abraham to take his only son that he loved, Isaac, and take him up on the mountain and kill him? And that seems like such a crazy thing for God to ask him to do. And remember the question that Abraham's son, Isaac, asked his father? He said, where's the lamb? And remember, God provided a, a, a ram in a thicket. He provided a, 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 a sacrifice to go in place of Isaac. But that was a picture of the sacrifice to come of Jesus Christ. And that question that Isaac asked in the Old Testament, way back in the Old Testament, was answered in the New Testament in John chapter 1, verse 29. When John saw Jesus for the first time, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Where is the Lamb? Jesus is our Lamb. That's the answer. And he deserves our worship because his death provided the perfect sacrifice once and for all for our sins. And I want to say this morning, we need to take that very seriously. Jesus' sacrificed for our sins. We cannot add one thing to our salvation that Jesus has already done. We can't add our religion to save us. We can't add our baptism to save us. We can't add our good works to save us. Listen, if Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not enough, then there's nothing that's enough. But we know that it is enough, amen? And we don't add anything to that. If we try to add anything to his sacrifice, we diminish what Jesus Christ did for us. He was seen as a slain lamb. Look at what else John describes. It says he was a standing lamb. He said, there stood a lamb as though it had been slain. There stood a lamb. Now, slain lambs don't usually stand unless they've been resurrected. I believe he is telling us of the resurrection of Jesus. This lamb looked like it had been slain, but yet it was standing and it was alive. Remember when we studied the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8? Remember how Jesus addressed that church? He said, these things says the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. Jesus deserves our worship today because he is our risen Savior. Not just our sacrificial Savior, but our risen Savior. He's also described here in verse 6 as a strong lamb. Notice that he said it looked like he had seven horns. This lamb had seven horns. Again, seven being the picture of perfection and completion. And also horns being the picture of strength. He's seeing this lamb, even though it's a pet lamb, it's a strong lamb. Theologians would call this omnipotence, the all-powerfulness of Jesus Christ. Jesus deserves our worship because he is not only the meek lamb that was slain, but he deserves our worship because he is the strong lamb who is in control and ready to judge the earth. And in chapter 6, we will see those judgments begin to take place. And then fourth, we see that he describes him as a searching lamb. Notice in verse 6, it says, This lamb had seven eyes and seven spirits, which were the seven spirits of God, reminding us that Jesus sees everything, and he knows everything. Theologians would call this the omnipresence and omniscience of God, that he's everywhere at the same time, that he sees everything, and he hears everything, and he knows everything. You know, Proverbs 15 3 can be a very convicting verse if you really believe it. And here's what it says The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. All week long before you came here, the eyes of Jesus were upon us. It's like he was following us around the video camera, seeing everything that we did, everything that we saw, everywhere we went, every thought that we had. For good and for bad, you know we can hide from a lot of people. We can fool a lot of people. All of us can, but there's one person we cannot fool and hide from, and that's God. That's His Son, Jesus Christ, who sees it all and knows it all. Do you believe that? Say yes. You know that can be, I can have a very practical, convicting effect on our lives. I know it certainly does on mine. One day we will give an account of our lives and our thoughts and our actions to the one who sees and knows it all, for good and for bad. But let me give you some more good news about this seeing lamb. Jesus also sees those who need him. He sees those and he reaches out for those who need him, who need to experience salvation and the sacrifice he paid for them. In Luke chapter 19 verse 10 it says this, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Maybe some of you today He's been seeking you. He's been trying to get your attention. He wants you to put your faith in him so you can be saved for all eternity. If he's looking for you today, I hope he'll find you. If you're looking for him, you certainly can find him because he says, if you seek me, you will find me. So who is worthy to open the scroll and to reveal this great redemption plan of God? It's Jesus, the lamb. Who is worthy as we're gonna see next week, we're gonna see that these seven seals are gonna begin to be broken one after another. And who is worthy to open these seals and to release the judgments that we're going to read about? It's Jesus, the lion, the lion of judgment. Now, I want you to just think about this this morning. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, one day you'll stand before him. And you'll either face him as the sacrificial lamb that paid for your sins and you put your faith in him. Or you'll face him as the lion of the tribe of Judah. I don't know about you, but if I've got to choose between facing a lion or a lamb, I'll take the lamb. Today he offers himself as a lamb, but one day he will present himself as a lion in judgment. And he deserves our worship because of who he is. Number two, he deserves our worship. Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship, not just because of who he is, but because of where he is. Notice in verse 6, John saw him in the midst of the throne. You might underline that in your Bible, in the midst. What does that mean? You see, John didn't see Jesus in a manger like we're getting ready to celebrate at Christmas. He didn't see Jesus in Jerusalem. He didn't see Jesus on a cross. He didn't see Jesus in a tomb. He saw Jesus in heaven as the exalted risen Lord on a throne. That's where he saw Jesus. You know, that ought to be very practically encouraging. If you came in here today and you're discouraged, you're suffering, you're going through difficulties in your family, job, with the economy, with your health, with politics, when you know Jesus Christ, you have someone who is on a throne in heaven in control. No matter what's going on in our lives, it is so reassuring and comforting to know that our Savior is on a throne. And He's in charge. The political leaders are not ultimately in charge. This world is not in charge. Jesus Christ is in charge when we know Him. He is on the throne. And Jesus knew suffering himself. Look at how he suffered on the cross for us. But now he enjoys the glory of heaven. And for those that know him, we, no matter how much we suffer down here, one day we will receive that same glory. We will receive the same blessings that he has received. He's in the midst of the throne. What does that mean, that he's in the midst of the throne? It means he's in the middle or the center of the throne. (laughs) Make no mistake about it. What John is describing here, this is very important. Jesus is the center of all activity and worship in heaven. He is the focal point, and every eye will behold his beauty and his majesty in heaven. You know, sometimes we hear songs today that are sung about heaven, and people sing about the streets of gold and the pearly gates and all those things and the mansion. We're not going to be singing about the streets of gold in heaven, y'all. We're not going to be singing about the pearly gates in heaven. We're not going to be singing about the great mansion we got. We're going to be singing about Jesus Christ, the one in the midst of the throne that is worthy of worship. All eyes will be on him. He will be the main attraction of heaven. Everything else will pale in comparison to who he is and where he sits. You have this in your notes. Don't ever forget this. We will not worship the creation of heaven. We will worship the creator heaven. That's what we'll worship for all eternity. And if Jesus is the main attraction in heaven, then I think it only makes sense that he's the main attraction today, that he's the main attraction in our church, that he's the main attraction in our lives. We worship Jesus. He is worthy of our worship because of who he is, because of where he is. And number three, we worship him and he's worthy of worship because of what he does. Look at verse eight through 10 with me. We worship him because of what he does. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. When Jesus, the Lamb, took the scroll from His Father, the weeping ended and the praise began. The praise began. And I want you to notice in verse 8 that praise and prayer are united together in heaven. The incense, the bowls of incense were symbolic and pictures of the prayers of praise that had been rising up for centuries to God's throne. Maybe you've never thought about this, but when you pray, I, I hope that you don't just ask God for things. But that you begin in your prayers by giving him the glory and honor that he's to do and addressing him in that manner and fashion. And you know what John is telling us right here? This is a really, really cool thought. That every time we pray right now praises to God, God is up in heaven and he's collecting them in these bowls like incense. And they've been collected for hundreds and thousands of years from those who follow him. And one day our literal praise and all this will be dumped out and it'll just bring forth in heaven to God. Your prayers are never wasted when it comes to God. Isn't that reassuring? God is holding them and he's saving them. And and the praise prayers are being saved for this very moment that John saw in the future yet to come that is going to take place. If you think back in the last week, how many prayers of praise was God able to hold from you? Any? We should be sending them up every day. We should be sending them up several times a day. Well, that's what I do on Sunday. We'll do it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and the rest of the week too. And I hope that your bowl and my bowl of praise for God, when it's poured out, that it's full, and it's emptied out, and this praise. And I told you last week, you're gonna see yourselves, many of you, in Revelation chapter five. You remember that last week? This is the spot. Can y'all grasp this for a second? Remember, John is seeing what is going to take place in the future. Right after the rapture of the church that is yet to come, this scene of Revelation 4 and 5, this worship experience, this worthiness, this scroll being taken, the praise and prayers coming together, this is it. This is what the universe has been waiting for since its inception for this incredible moment. And when John is describing all of these people around the throne that are singing these praises, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is so cool. He heard you. He saw you. He saw me. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That just gives me goosebumps. If you know Jesus, you're right here in Revelation chapter 5. If you don't know Jesus, you can get in this scene. It's not too late. I love that. That John saw and he heard us bringing these praises to God. It says here that we were singing a new song, verse 9. They sang a new song. Now this new song that they that we were singing, that we're going to be singing. I mean, it's not just any song. I mean, if there's one song, you know, that God is going to choose for us to sing to worship the Lamb who is worthy, what's the song? Well, we've got the lyrics right here. But what does it mean? There's some really incredible truths. I'm going to get these quickly. Listen to the kind of song that we sing. First of all, it's a worship song. Very fitting. We say right here at the beginning of the song, you are worthy. You are worthy. The word worship, literally means to ascribe worth to something. That's what worship means, to ascribe, to, to ascribe worth. And Jesus alone is worthy of our praise. Anything else that we worship is idolatry. And the song is a worship song. It's not only a worship song, it's a gospel song. Notice what it says. We sing here, you were slain and have redeemed us by God, to God, by your blood. It's a gospel song. What is the gospel? It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and what He did on the cross for us. We're singing about that in heaven, this gospel song. We're singing about the cross. We're singing about the blood that He shed to save us and give us eternal life. I I read recently about one denomination that decided to take all of the songs that they sang in their worship service that had blood, they thought it might be offensive, so they took all the songs out of their worship, this is true, uh, that that had blood in the title. Well, you know what? I got news for them. Those songs would never make it in heaven because in heaven we sing about the precious blood of Jesus, the gospel, and what he did for us. Not only is it a worship song and a gospel song, but it's a missionary song. Notice what we sing. Every tribe, he's redeemed every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people, every nation. It reminds us of John 3, 16. You know it. Say it. For God so loved the world. That He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever in the world believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The Gospel message is not just for Brighton, Colorado. The Gospel message is not just for Commerce City. The Gospel message is not just for Colorado. It's not just for the United States. The Gospel message is for the world. And we have a responsibility to help get that Gospel message into the world. And we need to be mindful of of that. You know, that's one of the reasons why we did the shoeboxes. Because these are going to be sent around the world to children in need. But as Barry told us, inside of these, they're going to get the gospel. And they're going to have a chance to hear how they can have their deepest need met, which is not physical, but spiritual. And, you know, that's why we do these things, to share the gospel around the world, because that's who the gospel is for. It's for everyone, and it's for you today. You say, well, I, I talk to people sometimes, and they say, well, Jesus would never save me. I've done this. I've done that. No, it's for everyone no one is excluded who's willing to put their faith and trust in Christ by faith. And I want to say this real quick. Um, the last couple of years, uh, Christine and Eric hansbrough they have headed up putting together this whole Operation Christmas Child. Uh, they brought it the do to our church last year, and they have done a lot of work. And I think, are you guys in this service? Right back here. Did you guys just raise up your hand? Let's thank them for all the work they've done. We appreciate you guys. Thank you. We appreciate their passion to help us get involved in such a worthy cause. You know, that's the commission. If you ask me, what is the goal? What is the mission of the Orchard Church? What is it? It's so easy to answer because it was given to us by Jesus. It's not something I came up with. Matthew 28, 18, go therefore and make disciples of how many nations? All nations. That's the ultimate goal of everything we do. Everything that we do. It also we see is a royal song. We see it as a royal song. He says, we sing because we to God that you've made us kings and priests to our God. You know, you couldn't turn on the TV this week without hearing about Prince William and Kate Middleton. There's a big wedding coming. It's a royal wedding and you know Kate Middleton is going to be the next princess you know to the Prince William there in, in England and everybody's making a big deal about it and when the wedding's going to take place the whole world will be watching and all of this because she this is normal girl is going to become royalty and it's a, it's a big deal but you know what I what I was thinking about this week studying this and what we're going to be singing about believers in Jesus Christ we will be made royalty in heaven we will be made kings and priests to our God Kate Middleton have nothing on us We all get this in heaven at the marriage Supper of the Lamb. You say, why is that important that we're made kings and priests? Because when you're made kings and priests, you are royalty, and you are part of God's family, and you have access to His presence. Something in the Old Testament, if you remember in the temple, there was the Holy of Holies, and it was only the High Priest. He was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies once a year to atone for sins. I got great news, every believer gets to go into the Holy of Holies of Heaven into the presence of God forever and ever and we're not excluded. Why? Because we're royalty. We've been made kings and priests. One place in the scriptures it talks about that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood we've been made to God. How, what, this is so practical because Hebrews says, let us therefore, because of who we are in Christ, come boldly to the throne of grace, to God's throne, that we may obtain mercy find grace to help in a time of need and here we're reading about the literal Holy of Holies the throne room of God and Revelation 4 and 5 and we have been granted access because Jesus paid the sacrifice to buy us back and redeem us into his family his royal family that's a cool thought we are royalty in Jesus Christ also this is a prophetic song we see here it's a prophetic song of the future. We shall, we sing about how we shall reign on the earth, verse 10 says. We are going to reign on the earth. This, again, is telling us about what we're going to read about in Revelation chapter 20 a little later. When Jesus is going to literally come back in the second coming to this earth. His millennial reign for a thousand years after his judgment. This is the prayers that of saints that have been prayed for years and years in the scriptures. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's coming. And when it comes, we as believers come with him. And not only is he going to rule and reign, but the scripture tells us. I don't know what it's all going to look like. I'll be honest. I don't understand all of it, but I believe it. The Bible says not only is Jesus Christ going to rule and reign, but we're going to rule and reign with him. Why? Because we're royalty. We're royalty. Jesus deserves our worship for what he has done to make us royalty. Part of his family. Part of his kingdom. That is sweet. That is really cool. He is worthy of our worship because of who he is, because of where he is, because of what he does. And finally, is worthy of worship because of what he has. Because of what he has in heaven. Look at verses 11 to 14 as we close out chapter 5. John says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels now around the throne. We, we've been singing. Now the angels are joining in. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. In the Greek, the word is myriads of myriads. It's the highest possible number to describe something. You know what John's saying? There's too many to count. It's innumerable. I can't even count them all. And this is what they're saying with a loud voice. And I want you to underline in verse 12. It's going to be very important in just a moment. The word saying the angels. He's describing the angels' worship in heaven. And he says, they are saying with a loud voice. What are they saying? The same thing we're singing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power. And here's what he received. Here's what he has in heaven. Power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, that's describing the whole universe, and such as in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing, honor, glory, power be to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb forever, and how long? And ever. How long is that? That's a really, really long time. That's eternity. Then the four living creatures said, say it, church. See, that's a biblical word. They said, Amen. Amen so be it. This is right. This is what we've been waiting for. And the 24 elders fell down and they worshiped him who lives. How long? Forever and ever. Here we see the climax of this worship service of Revelation 4 and 5 in heaven as the angels join in with the whole universe in praising the Lamb. But I want you to notice something that is really interesting. And this is going to test some of your theology. You're going to go home and check it out. And if you find this to be different, let me know. Because I've been searching and I haven't found it to be different than what I'm going to tell you. Two of the most respected scholars that I like to study concur with what I'm about to tell you. In verse 12, it says that the angels, when they joined in and worship, they were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb. But notice in verse 9, we didn't say, we sang a new song. Here's where I'm going to challenge you to theology. Did you know that we find nowhere in Scripture where angels sing? Nowhere in Scripture do we find that angels sing. No, wait a minute. What about, we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas, Pastor Doug. Don't you remember? Have you forgotten the Scriptures? Remember when the shepherds were in the field watching over their flocks by night, and there was a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God? And yes, I do remember that very well. I know that story. And in Luke chapter 2 verse 14, you know what it says? They said glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. It doesn't say they sang. Well, wait a minute. What about in Luke 15 when it says when someone accepts Christ as Lord and Savior, that there's joy in the presence of angels in, in heaven and a party breaks out. Do you believe that? Absolutely, I have heard believe that. There's joy in the presence of the angels. But it doesn't say they were singing. It says there's joy. They were maybe yelling, shouting, clapping. I think the saints are the ones that are, that are singing. You know we sometimes say to especially a lady if she sings very beautifully, oh you sing like an angel. We probably ought not say that. <laughs> because angels according to scripture don't sing. Now why did I bring that up? What what's what's the point? You know, you, man, you just bummed me out, pastor, Doug. I, I have a bunch of, you know, angel figurines in my house on my mantle and they're singing. You know, and I got to take them what, why did you tell me that? Here's why. Why don't angels sing? I believe this is the reason because the angels are not the recipients of salvation and redemption. We are. We are. Get it in your notes this way. It appears that singing is a privilege reserved for Christians who have experienced firsthand the joy of salvation. Because we're the ones that needed it. We're the ones that needed a Savior. We're the ones that needed a Redeemer. Angels don't need that. They're in heaven. They haven't sinned. They don't need that. You know what that ought to tell us practically, church? Listen to me. Corporately and individually, that ought to tell us how important and what a privilege it is to sing worship to God. If that privilege was given to us and no one else, then let's make sure we're taking advantage of it. Worship is not warm up for the message. It's not just something we do to get people in the room. It is one of the great privileges that God has given to us as believers. And the angels are praising Jesus for what now he has, what he now has in heaven. And they're saying it. And these are things they're praising him for that he has in heaven now, but he did not have when he was on the earth. They're found in verse 12 here. What is it that he's worthy of our, our worship because of what he now has? What does he have? It says he's received power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. You see, this is a important because when Jesus was here the first time, the world did not ascribe these things to Jesus. They did not treat him in this way. They did not give him what he was due. And some of these things he deliberately laid down so he could be our sacrifice. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 when it says, I mean you got to remember you all, Jesus was in heaven with his father. He was God. He left eternity and the perfectness of heaven to come to this sinful earth and take on human flesh. And he laid aside all of his royalty and the things of heaven to save us. And this is what Paul said, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. This word also means he emptied himself of everything of heaven. And he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, because he did that on earth, now God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I ask you, church, what do you say to that? Amen. Revelation 4 and 5 is the fulfillment of that passage. Where every knee and every tongue is confessing the whole universe. Jesus is finally getting the worship He is worthy of. And what does He receive? Power. When He was on the earth this first, the first time, He was born and died in weakness. But now He possesses all power on the throne in heaven. When He came to the earth this first time, when it comes to riches, listen to me. He was the poorest of poor. The Bible says he didn't even have a place to lay his head. But now in heaven, he owns all the riches of heaven and earth and the universe. When he came to the earth the first time, when you talk about wisdom, he was laughed at and he was called a fool by the people on this earth. But now, he is the very wisdom of God on the throne in heaven. When he came to the earth the first time, where was the string? He was hungry, he was thirsty, he was weary. His life was taken, but now he possesses all strength in heaven. Honor and glory. When he came to the earth the first time, he was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was spat upon. They laughed at his kingship. They hailed him as king of the Jews and mocked him. They put on him a mock robe. They put a crown of thorns on his head and a stick in his hand, and they made fun of him. But one day those same people will give him the honor and glory he deserves blessing. How has he received blessing? How have we received blessing? He became a curse on the cross for us so that we could be freed from the curse of our sin. He is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. And this worship service in Revelation climaxes with the whole universe praising the Lamb of God and the Father on the throne. I'm going to invite the band to come out right now. We're going to end this service.